How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. When you lose your love and it makes your life turn cold, is that the lethal weapon? Uh, when it tears song? you apart, your heart and soul just can't go on. When love's a lie that sets you free, when it's gold, it's plain to see how even love can become a lethal weapon. <laughs> Barry's voice, like a warm hug. Oh, man. Who um who sang that? Do you remember? Honeymoon Sweet is the name of that band. Yeah, I was I watching that. the music video yesterday five times, and uh, <laughs> the lead singer is a very hairy man. Like, he's just, he's wearing, like, the leather jacket, but, like, with the low-cut tank top i mean it's everything 80s that you want out of a music video it's just him and the band standing in like some kind of junkyard just singing in front of flames mm-hmm. and stuff i think mm-hmm. but it's he has like a sweater on underneath his tank top of just wow. man fur just <laughs> everywhere just... but he's got the exact same haircut as mel gibson so there's that part too oh that line there's, there's your t- there's your tie-in there you go <laughs> exactly <laughs> But I learned how even love can become a lethal weapon. Especially if your wife dies in a car accident. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And you don't don't know what a hollow point is, apparently. I'm also drinking Coors today in honor of Mel Gibson, and we're recording at 10 a.m., so just like him, I'm drinking. uh, (laughs) Here we are at our Christmas episode. Well, hello, it's the Cinema Shock, uh, (laughs) celebrating the legacy of uh, cult genre cinema, telling you all the history, everything you need to know. Merry Christmas. Don't mention Hanukkah, because Mel's around. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Merry, Merry Christmas. This is our official Christmas series. Black Yay. Christmas. We're not talking about Black Christmas, the movie. N- none of the versions. There are three versions. We're talking about none of them. Uh, we've <laughs> talked about the original one on our old show, though, so you can go back and listen to that if you really want to. Or next Christmas, we'll do all of the Black Christmas remakes. Maybe there'll be a fourth one. Maybe we'll do a whole month worth, four <laughs> weeks worth of Black Christmas. Did you introduce yourself? Did you say, hey, I'm Gary Horn? I don't remember. Hi, I'm Gary Horn. <laughs> hey, I'm co-host Justin Bishop. And we're joined today by a special guest. We're really excited to have on the show. Writer, comedian, and albino jackrabbit son of a bitch, Todd A. Davis. Welcome to the show, Todd. So glad to have you back. Thanks for having me back, guys. (laughs) I got to say, before we get too deep into it, this movie that we're talking about, we did cover, well, you guys covered on on our pre- previous show yes way early in the beginning and it is one of my favorite episodes it's also one of my wife's favorite episodes because of the introduction of the characters of uh harold and marlene was that on that episode that was that oh man yeah Yeah, if you're an old if you're a a long (laughs) time listener of of our our podcasting escapades then you might know what todd's talking about if you don't then it's still It's still back there in our feed. Harold, like what's a cinema shocker? 
but here we are, guys. It's officially the Christmas season. I don't start Christmas until after Thanksgiving. That's the rule. I don't. Yeah. Uh, I don't put up any decorations. I don't watch Christmas movies unless I'm watching them for the podcast because we record early. But generally, like after Thanksgiving is when I start my Christmas movie marathons. And this is this week. This is actually the first Christmas movie I will have watched for this season. So nice. uh, it's official. Sure starts the uh, Christmas music early, like as soon as Halloween's over. But you would not have done well on this movie because they apparently were filming like right before Thanksgiving. So they decorated like Hollywood Boulevard and Christmas stuff. And uh, <laughs> Mel Gibson says it gave people a lot of acid flashbacks and stuff. And they were, <laughs> well, that was back in the eighties before people started, right. you, before people started Christmas decorating the day after, after Halloween. But anyway, we, uh, you know, it's December now, as of the time that, you know, when, when you're listening to this episode, it is now December and this is uh, officially the Christmas season, pretty much for everyone once December rolls around. And, uh, you know, who loves Christmas? Shane. Well, Todd, I do. Todd's pointing I love himself. Christmas. I like Christmas. It's all right. Um, I always get a little mushy. All of you listeners get... like Christmas. If you're not a crotchety old prick, <laughs> you know who really likes christmas is shane black yes, shane black loves christmas indeed uh, so for the next few weeks leading up to the holiday the next four episodes we're going to be covering a handful of shane black scripted action movies that are all set within the christmas season shane black is infamously uh, he's infamous for for setting his movies at christmas time and these are not even the only four uh, there are probably about seven of them that have Christmas settings of some sort, but these are the the four most Christmassy of the bunch, I think. So to kick things off for this series, which we're calling Black Christmas, we're going to talk about the movie that really put Shane Black on the map and turned him into one of the most sought-after screenwriters in Hollywood. We're talking about 1987's Lethal Weapon. He's a criminal's worst nightmare. A cop who enjoys the danger. No guns, no jujitsu, just bring him down. Do you really want to jump? Well, then that's fine with me. Come on. Wait, I what do you mean? Wait a minute. He was ready to retire. Now, he's going to wish he had. Raj, meet your new partner. New partner? <laughs> Too old for this. If these guys can just stand each other. What you got in there? Boy and Smith? A lot of old-timers carry those. The bad guys don't stand a chance. When you lose your love. Maybe I should start. Every time you say Lethal Weapon, I want to sing a verse from that song. (laughs) Thank you. So Shane Black was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey. How How many times have we... Talking about fucking Pittsburgh. Well, we certainly we certainly have a type. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nation. His family relocated to Fullerton, California, when he was a sophomore in high school. Uh, after high school, he attended UCLA, where he majored in film and theater. So he he didn't go with the intention of being like a writer. He 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 got into filmmaking there, but he had always written, like as a kid and in high school and college. Like he, he wrote short stories, comic strips, did some journalism, but he never really saw it as like a viable career writing until his final year of college. He was a senior at college at UCLA, and a classmate of his by the name of Fred Decker showed him a sci-fi script that he'd done for an assignment and suggested that 
Black, give it a try. For everybody wondering, the script he showed him was for RoboCop 3. And Black <laughs> was like, what? It feels like there's more to this story. And yes. honestly, maybe even a better chapter of this story you could probably tell. I mean, it's called <laughs> RoboCop 3, and there's not even a movie called RoboCop yet. I know. And this, this shit is weird. And Decker said, you know what? <laughs> Fuck you, Shane. I'm going to make RoboCop 3, and I will do it with or without you or any other RoboCop movies. And, you and know then what? he did. He did make that movie and and then he just soared after that <laughs> <laughs> that career just took off after robocop 3 so black has a a kind of a reputation as being kind of a boy wonder because he did find success very young uh, the movie we're talking about today came out when he was about 25 years old but he didn't see success necessarily like right out of college he, he had to work his way into it a little bit after graduating he got a job as a typist for a temp agency uh, he was a data entry clerk for the 1984 Olympics. Uh, and he was an usher in a movie theater for a while. So he had a bunch of like shitty jobs after college, like a lot of us do after college. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you don't really just go right into your, uh, your, your chosen profession. Right. Eventually, he decided he really wanted to focus on screenwriting. So he asked his parents to financially support him for six months to allow him to work on a screenplay during that time. And his parents did. And the resulting script was called The Shadow Company. It was a supernatural thriller set in Vietnam that Shane Black described as a cross between Platoon and The Exorcist. Yeah, which that, I, sounds, that sounds dope. Yeah, I would love to watch it. It never got made, but I would love to watch it. I feel like I saw Shadow Company somewhere listed on like IMDb. Like it's like he potentially was still like saying it's a thing. But Yeah, uh, I don't think that's probably true. <laughs> well, was, did any of this tie in to him getting the gig on Predator? No, we'll get to the Predator connection here in just a minute. But no, this okay. had nothing to do with that. Oh, okay. yeah. So why so, don't you just hold your horses, pal? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's it's the Christmas ale, guys. Sorry. So you when, know, at this time, by the way, he was sharing a house. I just saw this randomly. Uh, sharing a house with like Fred Decker and ed solomon who did like men in black and charlie's angels oh wow uh, they were all they called it the pad of guys pad o guys pad o guys didn't yeah. ed solomon write robocop did he maybe hold on i'm gonna click on him oh uh, he wrote bill and ted's excellent adventure and bogus journey and well, i don't uh, know what i'm thinking of that's then. close <laughs> they're both yeah. movies very good movies <laughs> he wrote some stuff but they used to stay up till 2 a.m dissecting john woo fights Fight wow. scenes, not Very John cool. fighting. <laughs> that would be rude. <laughs> so I've got this one where it's him and his wife and they're talking about what to have for dinner. God, just really diving in on this one. While we're here on this trivia section, it also says he was 22 when he sold Lethal Weapon. He was 25 Ooh. when it went into production, which is what I said. I'm just telling you. <laughs> Gary, says he sold here's it what we're not going to do on this podcast is we're not just going to scroll IMDb trivia and read it. People can do that shit on their own. All right, fine. We're telling the real story, the full story of the making of Lethal Weapon. Mm -hmm. Well, that's some context for you, is that at 22, he sold it. But we're not there yet. We'll get there, and I'll bring it oh, up again. Yeah. yeah, stop jumping the gun, <laughs> Gary. <laughs> so with the help of Fred Decker, the Shadow Company script landed Black and Agent, and which, of course, like it always does, resulted in a bunch of fancy, posh lunch meetings with mid-level studio execs. And he, he you know, he's a... 22 year old kid he enjoyed the attention at first because you know he was being wined and dined like sure. he was a big deal yeah 
when he had just been working as, you know, an usher in a movie theater. But he soon realized that he was kind of wasting his time because instead of buying the shadow company, all these studio agents wanted was to give him an assignment. They wanted to hire him. And he knew that that just was not for him. He wasn't a guy that would just be a gun for hire. Well, the Uh, thing to to know about Black is, well, he's really complex because he's, He's a very funny and smart guy. If you ever see him in interviews, it's fun to listen to him talk. But he does seem to have like this very solitary side to him as well. I was like digging into stuff about him and to hear him talk about it. As a kid, he was very shy and reclusive. So he just, all he did was was read so much that he was like missing important moments in his life because he was just obsessed with this that he wouldn't eat for like three or four days at a time to save lunch money to go buy detective novels that he'd have to sneak because his parents found it too racy, which he says those were cool, but it was this masculine rough hewn rhythm to them that he loved. I've got a quote from him. He's, somebody asked him in this interview, like, why, how'd you start? How'd you get into reading so much? And he said it was It was just in our family. There's a bookshelf in our living room of books left over from my dad, who's a big tough guy fan. So you can hear your Mickey Spillane there. So I'm literally a nine-year-old kid reading Mickey Spillane, and my mother's very upset because of dirty parts, the naked parts. I read school books, but sometimes when I tried to read for pleasure, I couldn't make any sense of the words anymore. And I figured out later, psychologically, it's because I was sensing from people around me, especially my parents, this disapproval, like they felt hurt. My dad would say, hey, I'm leaving for my trip for two weeks, and I'd go... Yeah, okay. And I just keep reading. And I read too much. I read in school. I never dated. If I had a free period, instead of going to play baseball, I'd read a book. So of course, all of this combined to make me a psycho. And the truth <laughs> is, I was a recluse. I was sort of a shy kid who actually my only hobby was stand up comedy. He said, I listened to it all day in an empty room, just me laughing my ass off. But that was my entertainment and then books. I read so much that I developed dyslexia because my own mind seemed to rebel and said, look, you're not even saying hello to your mother and father anymore. You have to stop reading. Anyway, he's a real fucking nerd. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He said, anyway, uh, so yeah, all of this basically to say that he wasn't some outgoing social maniac or anything. He was more to himself coming out of this whole period. And he's used to doing things on his own time and his own terms. So the second he finally gets a sit down, and it's not to just take what he was already working on and use it. It's like not what he signed up for. So he's right. probably just, he, he's not a guy who's afraid of dropping off the scene at certain times when something oh, happens which we'll, which like. we'll discuss probably over the course of the series. Right. You know. But yeah, he said that he was terrified of being hired and he also didn't want to have to work on a deadline. He wanted to basically write a script on his own and he wanted somebody to buy it. So he stopped taking meetings completely and sat down and wrote a new script, finished it in about six weeks, and that script was Lethal Weapon. When you lose so, your luck, le- I'm sorry. <laughs> Black's goal with with the script was to write uh, what he described as an urban Western, uh, which would be inspired by kind of the stuff, you know, the kind of books that you're talking about that he read, Gary, but also by films uh, like Dirty Harry, where, as, as Black says, where, the way he describes it, he says it, it, these are films about like a violent character who's reviled for what he's capable of and what he believes and who is eventually recruited for being like the one guy who could get the job done, who could solve the problem. Now, according to Black, the, his first draft of the script was much darker and much bigger in scope than the finished film. Uh, the ending of that version of the script had a chase scene with helicopters and a tractor trailer full of cocaine that would explode over the Hollywood Hills and with cocaine kind of snowing over that famous Hollywood sign. It sounded ra- pretty rad. Yeah, that say. actually sounds really, he, really, uh, really awesome. Yeah, he, he actually hated the first version of the script and he gave up on it, threw it away. 
the, at first, but uh, he eventually picked it back out of the trash bin and, and rewrote it. And once he had completed it, his agent sent it to studios all around Hollywood, all of whom rejected it until it landed on the, a de- the desk of a Warner Brothers executive by the name of Mark Canton. And he kind of, Canton took a liking to it. He brought along producer Joel Silver, who also loved it. And Joel Silver worked with Shane Black to kind of further develop the script. Yeah, if if any of the listeners are, if you don't know who Joel Silver is, just go ahead and pull him up. And the thing that always sticks out to me about Joel Silver is hearing him talk about, and I mean, this is, you know, further down the, further down uh, the historical line than where we're at right now. But I always think of him talking about um, the cast preparing for The Matrix. Yeah. And hearing him talk about how exciting it is and the work that they do, Joel Silver is a, he is the penultimate producer. Like he gets you excited about whatever project is going. So to have somebody like Joel Silver on a project like this for someone, you know, in Shane Black's position is phenomenal get. That's really, that's really fantastic. Yes. Yeah, if you're a fan of like 80s and 90s action movies, I promise you've seen multiple Joel Silver movies. Oh, yeah. I actually had a couple of things here. One was that silver thing you're talking about. I, I, I dug a good bit in with Shane Black gives silver a lot of credit in this movie um, as far as with the script and his patience and time with everything going back to the script itself though, if I could, I mean, I, I think this it's appealing to know like a little bit of like how Shane black, you know, you mentioned the dirty Harry thing. Uh, so like Justin said, society creates like the Frankenstein's monster that all of a sudden cleans things up and then everybody gets too classy and they don't like how dirty and grotesque this thing they made is. But violence, they don't give a shit what you think. It rears its head in ugly ways. And then it comes back. And the only thing you can go do is knock on Frankenstein's cage and let him out to like deal with the problem that's too much for you to deal with. Like, I mean, it seems like a pretty basic story, but it's uh, it's fun. And that's like a, a big part of Shane Black's thing. The other thing is that I think he digs that Western thing. Justin mentioned that. Well, he was a fan of Walter Hill a lot too. Well, I was actually, I was actually going to say is like, yeah, with the, you know, one of his things was the disparate spirits make great stories. Uh, so that's that Riggs and Murtaugh thing. But yeah, he, he, he talks about being his, one of his mentors was William Goldman who did Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. William oh, Goldman like it. literally wrote the book on screenwriting. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And then the other one is Walter Hill. Uh, he describes Hill is having this very terse and slug-like prose that he really digs. Anyway, the the way he decided to I mean another his, I mean 48 hours Walter Hill. I mean, you see oh, that yeah. you see that DNA all over this movie. Right, exactly. Cuz yeah, you got the Riggs guy who's everything we just described as far as Murtaugh, he talks about being a fan of the simple guy, the street cop, the plotter he calls and talking about how they're just going through their day to day. They got a lot going on in their brain, but there's this raunchy, lanky, gruff rhythm about them he describes where they're shuffling around town like in a town like Los Angeles and they're just in the pursuit of justice. You know, it's like a simple goal and but there they are, and they're washing wear suits, he calls them, just uh, pulling down a paycheck that's not very big, uh, just trying to maintain this one thing. And he just thought these two things paired up so perfect, which is what he did in the script anyway with that William Goldman, Walter Hill thing. He decided to find his own voice, and he's like, I'm going to mash these two together the best that I can and get the best of both worlds. So back to Joel Silver, I mean, the script he ended up with, was like 138 pages long. And so he would eventually work with Silver on that. But like Mark Kenton's another guy that, 
you mentioned him too. And I know we're, we're kind of trying to move along, but you know, he's a big time player as a producer now, but at this time he was like a lowly exec at Warner brothers, but to hear him describe it, he actually, there was something I was watching where he goes into detail about 86 around this time where it's like probably like more of what Shane Black would have, like Shane Black was just like a little too early that first time. It sounded like that this time when he had the lethal weapons thing, Canton describes it. Things were so much different than they are now. And then he's like, you could really get by on artistry because there was just, it's everything you think about with the eighties. He said, and not just like cocaine, but just fucking money thrown everywhere. Like mountains of money in the studios where they're just like wanting to buy things. And he said, there was a place there for, if you had any kind of original idea in your head that you could make a shit ton of money and have people fight over you and bid for your idea. It was also more familial in the studios. Like everybody was kind of tight and they trusted mm. each other. He says, uh, there's, and there wasn't this thought of everything's got to land perfectly. Some stuff with Terry, uh, what's his name? Terry Seamel and uh, Rob Daly, who were like co-CEOs of Warner Brothers at the time. They said that they went in with in a plan and, and like this time, they were like tossing out at least 20 movies a year. Like they just wanted to throw them out there and they knew some would be huge. Some would be average. Some would not make it. They'd completely miss, but they were more apt to gamble during this time. And so if somebody felt passionate about something, they'd follow along with it. So in this case, uh, Joel Silver, he's passionate when he's, when he's on board, he is on board, man. Well, the, the first guy here is Canton because Canton found this script that was being tossed around. He said that like, I think Fox had passed on it. And mm. so Joel Silver calls it, uh, after that, it, it went to the town. And so then the town's like tossing it around and thinking about it. But Canton immediately fell in love, went straight to the CEOs of Warner Brothers and said, I, I think we have to do this. This is the one. And that they were just kind of like, all right, fuck it. Whatever you need, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> well, so where, where in the time, you know, this is sort of maybe chicken in the egg, but was Die Hard before this? It's after. It's it after. is after? Okay. Because yeah. I was. Yep. We'll get to that as Riggs, well. Riggs and Murtaugh have that authentic realism yes, that ends absolutely. up getting per- personified in, in John McClane. Yeah. But just to go back for just a second to something Gary said was they, you know, the, the duality, or not the duality, but like the dichotomy of these two characters and how well it plays off of each other in action is so great but it also works in comedy you know shane black talking about comedy being a big influence you look at stuff like the odd couple and you know and where stuff like that comes into play here of course further down the road and maybe lethal weapon obviously being an influence is something like hot fuzz where you've got the you got the straight guy and you got the guy who's uh, he's a little weird he's a little off but it, it, it works so well to tie that into what you were talking about before, Todd, with like Joel Silver, I, the, the other reason I brought that other stuff up was I was going to say is like maybe some that's not even budget was an issue as far as like the kitchen sink style script that Shane Black right. came in with. When it got pushed in front of Joel Silver, Joel Silver <laughs> fell in love with it, but he 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 didn't think the magic was in all of the showy stuff. It was mm. in that Shane Black was doing all of this work at a character level. That yeah. he had never seen, especially in an act action script. I think what usually makes black scripts that they're more colloquial would be the word. Yeah, colloquial, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, the they're word. open. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and so he finds like amazing stuff out of nothing going on in the scene. So when Joel Silver talks about the script when he first saw it after it got brought to him, was that it wasn't just hard boiled tough guys. It was the rhythm. Uh, that's a theme, I guess, the rhythm of things. He said the rhythm in the writing of the two characters as well. Uh, 
like like when he talks about it, he always everything I saw with him, he tells the story about like one of his favorite lines, like right off the bat that stood out to him is the part where Riggs and Murtaugh in the car and like Murtaugh's like, God hates me. He says, Well, hate him back if it works for me. Yeah, and that's uh, a good line. And he talks about like, is there anything or anybody you've met that you haven't killed yet? And he said, Well, I haven't killed you yet. So he likes that rhythm and the dialogue back and forth with him. And he points out too that despite what people think, there weren't a lot of action movies at this time. And especially not just popping up all over the place, especially good ones. He said, much less would you find like an action movie with actual character development and heart behind them. That's the key. Yeah. So he's Shane Black, though, you know, to tie it all together, he was a huge fan of Joel Silver. He said that he was like the most available person in the world during this time that he'd sit down rewriting in an office right down from Joel Silver and all hours of the day would just keep going back and forth to Joel Silver's office and be like, all right, I thought of this thing. What if? And he would tell him and Joel <laughs> Silver would sit with him and like roll ideas around with him and toss them back and forth and stuff. It it under, understanding that film is such a collaborative art, yeah. it really helps when all parties, including including your quote unquote money guys, your producers, are involved in that artistic process and really, you know, are a good sounding board. Of, I mean, because the artistic types are going to come with like a shit ton of ideas. A lot of them are not going to be good. <laughs> so it's good to have a voice of reason to go, hey, I see where you're going. It is cool, but it's not going to work. So that's exactly let's, right. Let's take these 10 ideas and boil them down to three, you know, black, and, black uh, credit silver a lot. Like uh, when it comes to the script, but like silver straight up says like the only thing that I did was I encouraged him to add more character stuff and focus in on that and subtract scale. Yeah. Because I mean, uh, hell, you can have plot, you can have plot all day long and stuff blowing up and stuff. But if you don't care about your characters, hell, we talked about this on the old show when we were talking about Predator. You care about these guys. So it matters when something happens to them. Well, going to a couple of, of points, Gary, you mentioned Mark Canton. Uh, well, we, we mentioned Mark Canton, but you mentioned that he's a big producer now. Just to tie this into one of our previous series, uh, he was a producer on George Romero's Land of the Dead. Oh, nice. Wow. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> uh, so, and, and also, and here's to answer a question you had earlier, Todd. So during doing rewrites, uh, Shane Black and Joel Silver was having him do some rewrites, rework the script a little bit. Before he started on those rewrites, he asked Joel Silver if he could have a minor acting role in another movie that Silver was shooting at the time, and one where Shane Black did some uncredited rewrites, which is why Joel Silver wanted him, which is why Joel Silver agreed to allow him to have this acting part. Uh, and of course, we know what that resulted in. Shane, Shane Black has probably his most memorable acting role uh, in a small but very memorable role in in Predator, which came out also in 1987. Same yeah, year. He was really good on the set. <laughs> There's Jesse. So around the same time that he was working on this, he also sold another screenplay that he'd be working on with his old friend, Fred Decker, which w Decker would end up directing himself called the monster squad. Mm. He also plays a cop in that movie, like in a, like a brief cameo. The very, very small. Yeah. Very yeah. small Who, role. Black, black does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Shane black. Oh, so. that's cool. So after purchasing the lethal weapon script for, they purchased it for $250,000. Uh, the studio approached director Richard Donner, who was best known at the time for The Omen, uh, Superman the Movie, and The Goonies. So he had a pretty good track record. Yeah. He'd been offered a lot of action movies in the years since Superman, but turned most of them down because they didn't really interest him. But Lethal Weapon's focus on character really caught his attention. Uh, now, Donner has a... He's, he's had a really interesting career. He hasn't directed a movie since, I want to say 2006 or so, 12 rounds. No, no, not 12 rounds. 
16 Blocks. <laughs> <laughs> Not the John Cena movie. I was going to say, did he work with John Cena? <laughs> no, 16 Blocks with Bruce 16 Willis. 16 Blocks, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Mos Def is, was his last movie, and that's been quite a while. But, I mean, he's he's in his 80s now, I think. So good, he's all, all, but, all but retired. But yeah, he was, career, he's been in the business for forever. Yeah, his career began in the early 60s. He worked as a gun for hire on a variety of TV shows for about a decade and a half before ever making a movie for Jeez. for a... I mean, he made a couple of TV movies here and there, but his feature film debut was The Omen, which was 1976. Oh yeah, but Grant, I mean, it's like, oh yeah, first time director, but not really because he'd been making TV shows for 16 years or so at that point. Wow. Uh, he followed The Omen up with Superman, Lady Hawk, and The Goonies. So really weird filmography. Sol- really, well, that's what bat- I was going to really say. Solid batting average. Yeah. yeah. How underrated is this guy? If he goes straight off the Omen, which is a certified horror classic, to do yeah. it possibly Stri- still the definitive Superman movie, right? Yeah. And, uh, and then directed for whatever reason is a lot of people's favorite childhood movie, The Goonies. Yeah. Uh, to redefining the action genre. His and then his his follow up to. Lethal Weapon was Scrooged with Bill Murray. Oh, that's another right. another Christmas movie. Yeah, yeah. God, <laughs> and and Scrooge. if you look at that that list pre Lethal Weapon, especially if you look at the list of movies he made, he wasn't really an action guy, with the possible exception of Superman, which could kind of be considered an action movie. It's at least an adventure movie, uh, but you'd never know that I think by the approach that he takes here because he is really good. He's a really solid director, not showy or anything, but. The movie, this movie, and as we'll discuss, just in terms of casting, pacing, editing, stunt work, like it all comes together together in this movie to make a pretty incredible piece of pop filmmaking, and, and it really shows that this guy had been at this point in his career, even though he'd only had a handful of movies, uh, he'd he'd been working for quarter of a century at this point. So he's a he's he's still a veteran already at this point. Well, well, to throw it back to the the thing with WB and the Warner Brothers, with as far as the familial thing, I think one way that ties in here is like with Canton and these guys. Canton was almost tasked with like, all right, let whatever you need, let's put this thing together. Let's make a I don't want to say dream team, but like no, that's get fair. everybody together that you team. think is perfect for this job. Like let's yeah. put everything into it. They wanted to have a good team. They wanted all big players, which is not what they necessarily went with in the end. But but basically what I'm saying is, is they kind of nailed it because I mean, this whole team basically ends up working on every single one of these movies. Like yeah. there's four lethal weapon movies and they do mm-hmm. all of them. Mm-hmm. But, and at this time, Going back to what they wanted to do, the first thing they wanted to do was hire a legit director, and Dick Donner was the first step. I call him Dick because we're buddies. Right. And I like saying Dick. Um, <laughs> anyway, Dick. <laughs> Dick describes, like when he talks about the movie, he describes he was reading it in bed one night next to his wife, and it sounds like almost just like a let's get one thing out of the way so I don't have this tomorrow to worry about. And so he's just like reading through the script. But he says at the time, he was never like interested in action scripts because everything he'd ever read was like just gratuitous and boring. He says, but he was reading this and then he was just like, shit, there's characters in this and there's a journey. And yeah. he turns to his wife and he says, I think you got to check this out. And he said, he gave it over to her and she read it and she looked at it and was like, I think you have to do this. And that was that. Uh, and Shade Black for the record loved it. Cause he said the second he had a conversation with daughter, he knew this is, this is going to be interesting. 
Uh, and Donner wasn't the only director that they approached for it. Uh, the studio had also spoken to Leonard Nimoy about it. Yeah. Uh, who, who people forget was a, was a director, was a, mm-hmm. a, a dreaming and a baby. Prolific. Well, yeah, that's, well, that's what happened here. So Nimoy, he didn't really feel comfortable directing an action film for one thing, but he was all already kind of, in pre-production working on three men and a baby at the Mm. time. So he was already kind of committed to that. But despite the success of Lethal Weapon, Nimoy might have still had the last laugh because three men and a baby ended up being the highest grossing film of 1987. (laughs) It beat out Predator, it beat out Robocop, and it beat out Lethal Weapon. Like it was the number one movie of the year. That's crazy. Isn't that wild? And also before signing on Richard Donner, Joel Silver's original pick was Ridley Scott. Oh. Not Tony Scott, oh. not Tony Scott, Ridley Scott, the guy who had you know, made Alien, speaking of Walter Hill, Alien and, and Blade Runner, you know, these dark, dark movies. The yeah. studio actually did not want Ridley Scott because of Blade Runner's recent failure. And I mean, what? Ridley, well, Blade I mean, because like Blade Lethal Runner Weapon kind of has this noir feel to it. Sorry Blade, to interrupt. Blade Runner was a there. flop. Blade Runner lost Warner Brothers a lot of money. Really? Yes. Wow. Blade Runner was a major flop, a major disappointment. It didn't become a cult film until many, many years mm. after its release. Okay. And Ridley had done action, of course. Like he had done Black Rain with Michael Douglas recently, but that's a very humorless film. I, I think Black Rain is kind of a cool movie but it's hard to see him tackling the humor of lethal weapon during during this time period now later on you know a few years after this he would do Thelma and Louise and you know but the guy who they were looking at at the time I don't think would have been a good a good pick of course Ridley's brother Tony Scott who this material seems to suit a little bit better he would actually get his shot at his own Shane Black script not long after this but that is a story that we'll talk about next week maybe this actually does work better though i mean obviously i mean it's lightning in a bottle but but like richard dodder they said would be almost to a guy like joel silver would just be like how the fuck is this gonna work because like richard dodder is like joking and fucking around the whole time like he would be dead like just laughing at something just howling and then he would be like all right it's time to do the scene let's go and it's like a very serious moment (laughs) but somehow (laughs) it makes you comfortable and people it still works like that. Well, I mean, you, you know, with his, with his, uh, with his first, his first film working closely with a kid and then his, you know, second, you know, his follow-up working with a dude in tights, he's got to have a good sense of humor. So, <laughs> uh, you know, and taking dark material like this, which, uh, you know, is so surprising that I just feel like there's a big noir element to lethal weapon largely due to the music, which I'm sure we'll get to. In well, it's just interesting while. too, just like with daughter, just being so funny. Yeah. That there are these dark points of the movie. It's just something's mm-hmm. different about it, but mm-hmm. you can watch it behind the scenes. I mean, the thing that always drives me crazy about directors that I think would be the hardest thing in the world is knowing exactly what's going on all the time. Oh and that's God, just yeah. like it's a lot oh. to have in your brain. Yeah. Just, at look, all just look at how many departments. Just well, that's also why they have script supervisors and things like that. To help yeah. I, I was watching that. some behind the scenes <laughs> stuff of him and he's like a general, but like a fud general. Like yeah. he, he was like some of the stuff, like I was watching like him specifically directing like the scene with like Glover, uh, where the helicopter's there and like he's got the grenade, you know, out in the desert and stuff. And he's like talking to Danny Glover and he's like, all right, so then you'll do blah, 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 blah. Somebody's just filming this. But then he's like, all right, so we got to, hey, hey, shut the fuck up. Hey, <laughs> is that, are those my people? Shut the fuck up. I'm the boss. 
Okay, anyway, <laughs> you will go here. He will turn around. He rolls the grenade here. You will shoot him here. You dropped one leg there. Boom, boom, boom. Just like all of a sudden, it's like, what the fuck with this guy? Wow. So after he signed on for the job, Richard Donner brought in a writer by the name of Jeffrey Boehm to do a few uncredited rewrites on the film because he still did feel that the script was a little bit too dark. And uh, most of Boehm's contributions were kind of moments of humor, like little bits of humor to lighten things up here and there. I mean, Shane Black definitely has a, there is a humor to all of his scripts, Mm. uh, but this is definitely the, I don't want to say jokiest because there's not really jokey, but I'd say it's the funniest of the Shane Black scripted movies. You know, the part that made me laugh the most this time for some reason, it was when uh, he goes up to the roof, but like right as he's going, uh, him and Murtaugh are talking and Murtaugh says, uh, yeah, all right, just be careful, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, Roger. And he's like, what? He's like, no, I mean, like 10-4. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's just such a stupid throwaway line. (laughs) There's a lot of great little lines like that. Well, let's talk a little bit bit about the casting because this is obviously a very big part of this movie. Um, Although Bruce Willis was considered for the part of Martin Riggs, initially donner actually wanted his superman star he wanted christopher reeve in the role at first which i cannot imagine honestly christopher reeve doing something this dark but reeve turned it down and the lead role of martin riggs eventually went to mel gibson who of course was already a big star at the time because of the mad max trilogy and like donner it was kind of the character dynamic of the script that really attracted gibson to this Uh, he turned a lot down a lot of action movies over the years because that's what people wanted him for after uh, after mad max and he pictured Riggs as what he describes as, uh, this is a quote from Gibson, he, he described him as an almost chaplain-esque figure, a guy who doesn't expect anything from life and even toys with the idea of taking his own. He's somebody who doesn't look like he's set to go off until he actually does. So kind of like a just a ticking time bomb. Right. You know? Oh, um, man, you, you get that so much here. <laughs> Black has a funny story where he's like, basically like, I deserve full credit for this. Or he's, you know, like, I want full credit for this. He says, uh, I don't really picture a face when I write exactly, but I happened to be in on the meeting when Mel's name first came up. And I was like, oh man, I just knew this motherfucker is totally wrong for this part. <laughs> like he's Australian. Does he even really speak English? Like what is he's like, you know, obviously now he's on board with every everybody else, but and, uh, but he he definitely tells that story where like I thought that was terrible well you're wrong <laughs> well it's funny you say that he doesn't picture a face because the the ethnicity of the the murtaugh character wasn't defined in the script he wasn't like a black guy in it. and it and it doesn't really ever get commented on in the movie at all the but it does add a little bit of gravitas to it like especially the scene where the little kids are asking if cops shoot black people you know like that mm. having a black cop there is kind of uh important but right. it wasn't written into the script necessarily and it was uh, the casting director, Marion Dory, who first suggested teaming Gibson with Danny Glover. Danny Glover was kind of hot off of um, a color purple. So she made arrangements to fly Gibson from his home, which is in Sydney, Australia. Glover's in Chicago where he's doing a play and they, they fly them both into Los Angeles to do a little like reading together, a read through of the script. Well, mm-hmm. so for what it's worth, just uh, just to throw this in there, I mean, going back just real quick to something you said about Gibson, I mean, the thing about him is that from his side of things, he had a relationship with Donner because Donner had apparently been talking to him already because he really wanted him for Lady Hawk, and Gibson turned it down. And then he, he said 
then at the time he was so sick of everything he kept getting offered. He, every role seemed to be this dude just filled with angst and he was just kind of tired of that kind of thing. And like you said, just the same roles that he would be used to, to getting. But the cool part was, is, you know, Shane Black was, he was interviewing cops, right? And, and they're the ones he heard of the psycho pension thing from. Uh, like, it's a real thing. He said, you know, like they would tell him about it. Cop needs a break. They're struggling. There's a thing we call psycho pension. It's basically you just start talking shit. Like you're going to blow somebody away. And you go out first time you see somebody fire three shots over their head at them and uh, boom, suspended two months with pay. That's just a thing they would do. I don't know if that's still the case, but he said the cops really told him that. No, uh, they just shoot people now. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but he says, what if there's a guy who really is crazy? A lot of people think he's just full of shit. He's pulling that number. He's fucking around. And he's legit not in a good spot. That's a great dramatic hook. And, it, and to him, it was a big deal psychologically. And he wanted to see if he can make this guy into a hero so he researches CIA, snipers, and says, he finds out like sharpshooters are generally lonely and removed. Riggs has suicidal ideation. But he said there's a different part about being suicidal that like most people can't land on, which is like there's a manic side to suicide, where there's like a bringing on side of you mm -hmm. too, that mm -hmm. like a lot of people don't ever capture right. And uh, he said, you know, they're like laughing while they shove the knife in is how he says it. Then comes Mel, who... All, all of the angst and everything else was there. But to him, when he reads the script the first time, he says the thing that stands out to him is that after everything, it's this, there's a lot of heart. There's wit. It's fun to hear him talk about it. He's like, oh yeah, I almost forget that there's like torture and shit in this movie. It felt like we were making a family <laughs> film. Yeah, <laughs> He's like, the eighties were different, man. And uh, to Glover, you know, what you were just talking about, uh, Donner tells the story on something I was watching where he said when Marion Dory like brought up Danny Glover to him. He was like thinking about it. And she's like, well, have you seen the color purple? He's like, yeah. And she's like, well, Danny Glover. And he's like, but he's black. And he said, he, he legitimately said that. Then he had to take a step back and realize I'm putting, I, I just assumed a white guy, but I'm putting that on him because he's like going back to the script. He's like, there's nothing here that says that there's mm. never a point that that's necessarily the case. And so once he realizes he's made that assumption, he's like, yeah, let's let's try him out. And for Glover, he says 100%, like what you were just talking about, that you sometimes you make a social statement without even trying. Kind of like George Romero in Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, yeah. There's mm -hmm. this idea of this black and this white guy teaming up. And he, he's a strong black character, successful, has family. He's, he's got his ship together better than Mel does. Right. And, and Riggs. Yeah, he gets partnered with that. And he says he thinks that like a lot of people like that concept and they, they don't see it enough. And it's like, this is something they really embraced about these two characters. And, and there's been movies like you know, we mentioned 48 Hours earlier, but this was one even where Glover and Gibson both loved that there wasn't ever tension because of that between right. the two characters. It's never even, there was no factor to comment on that exactly between the two of them. To some people, there's even like a father-son dynamic between the two of them, yeah. which was- yeah which was interesting for them. Anyway, well, sorry. Well, another thing that really attracted Glover was kind of the family dynamic because he, he liked the idea of this being like a strong family man and that being a big aspect of the script. So they bring in both of these guys to do their read-through and the chemistry between them was apparent immediately. According to Donner, they were able to like find the character's 
completely in just that one reading. Like after two hours, he says that they had found humor where he had never seen it. They had found pathos where he had never seen it. He described the whole, like that whole first read through with these two guys as magical. Yeah. The Glover tells the story about Canton sitting there in the room when they're doing the uh, read through. And just as soon as it's over, they all look at him and Mark Canton's just like, Oh, well, well, that's that. Let's make a movie. <laughs> yeah. Just well, so I mean, they, when it works, it works. There's no yeah. denying it. So they've got the two leads signed on. The next uh, step is to cast the rest of the movie. And they needed to start with the film's kind of main threat, main physical threat, at least, which is Mr. Joshua, yeah. uh, played by uh, by Gary Busey in the movie. <laughs> so for this role, they, they wanted somebody who was physically imposing, who looked like he could be a threat to Mel Gibson when they fight. And Busey's a big dude. Busey was an established star at the time. He, he had actually been nominated for an Academy Award for the lead role in the Buddy Holly story back in 1978, but he hadn't auditioned for a role in a while. He'd gained some weight, uh, but he had recently lost like 60 pounds, got back into shape, slimmed down. And, you know, we, we think of him as a Hollywood bad guy now because he did this. He did like Under Siege, like that's kind of his thing. But uh, this was actually, he had never played a villain before this movie. Uh, and he actually credits lethal weapon to reviving his career and giving him a basically a second career it's weird to think of him as physically menacing but he really is in this movie he's a big dude oh yeah yeah it's 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 interesting but yeah come on man he teams with like right after this i mean he lights up it's like he's with danny glover and predator 2 mm-hmm. and then at point break and like you said under siege just loving that point break oh so, so good other well, you know his 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 voice to be honest like like physical stature aside, like I j- even just the few lines that he has in this movie, I w- I found myself sort of closing my eyes and just hearing the cadence because I love a good villain and just hearing the cadence of his voice and the calm, sinister tone yeah. that he that he's got. It he definitely just, found like just a, awesome a niche for himself in playing villains with. Yeah, 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 love it. So other key roles that we're cast include uh, Tom Atkins as Michael Hunsicker, who yes. we all know who Tom Atkins is, you know, John Carpenter's The Fog, Halloween 3, Night of the Creeps, of mm-hmm. course, directed by Shane Black's old buddy, Fred Decker. God uh, bless Tom Atkins. Also yeah. from Pittsburgh. Also from Pittsburgh. <laughs> uh, you had Mitchell Ryan as Peter McAllister, who's like the main bad guy, the general. Uh, he's a long left time. His, left his son at home yep. over Christmas vacation. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Mitchell Ryan was a longtime actor, stage and screen. Uh, probably best known for, at least to genre fans, for a role on the soap opera Dark Shadows. Uh, and also as Dr. Wynn. Hell and yeah. Halloween six or Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers, the man in black himself. There he nice. is. That's great. Or, or Trekkies might know him as commander Riker's father. I was going to bring that episode of the next generation. Ah, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the good part for him here though, is he also just, he just has that face that like, he's a guy like going back even further. He's in a bunch of Clint Eastwood stuff too. Like he's in high plains yeah. drifter. Nice. He's a villain there. I remember. And he's also in, uh, Magnum Force, which is uh, another Dirty Harry movie. Dirty Harry, yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, then you've got Darlene Love as as uh, Murtaugh's wife. Darlene Love was, of course, before becoming an actor, she didn't have a big acting career, but she was a, a well-known singer. Uh, she was a member of the Crystals, uh, the popular Christmas song, Christmas Baby, Please Come Home. That's Darlene Love. She worked with Phil Spector a lot. Oh, wow. Uh, she didn't know, she's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now. I think she got inducted about four or five years ago. 
she didn't have a big acting career, but she's in all of the Lethal Weapon movies. Uh, and then there's also a lot of like a lot of these guys, these faces you see as like henchmen and stuff like that that appear in this movie. You I was got, about to say, don't um, forget our boy Al Leong. Al Leong as Endo, yeah. Oh, you yeah. He Al was Leong. the hatchet man in Big Trouble in Little China. Yep. He's uh, in Bill and Ted and... Uh, he's he's like, in Die Hard. He's a Die Hard. He's yeah. in everything. If, if there was a every bad guy John in a Carpenter movie, in the movie 80s, he's somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> like and his inclusion in this gives Mel Gibson a chance to use a racial slur. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which he does. Yeah. Mel I Gibson think contractually also, he has that. Yeah, he also drops the uh, the f word in this. Yeah, he does. He does. You know, it's not an eighties. It's not an eighties movie unless somebody uses a homophobic slur. <laughs> That was just standard back then. It's not a Mel Gibson movie unless somebody uses a racial slur. Yeah. But Ali Og especially, though, he he definitely has one of those faces that you're just like, why do I know that guy? Yeah. Oh, Ed Ross is in it. He he plays like the, he's only in like one scene. He plays Mendez, the guy who comes to the general, you know, but he mm. was, in, he's in like Universal Soldier, Full Metal Jacket, Red Heat. He was um, itchy in Dick Tracy, one of the, one of the henchmen oh, oh, nice. in Dick Tracy. Yeah. So there's yeah. just all kinds of, like well-known kind of character actors, 80s henchmen types in this movie. <laughs> Incoming transmission. Hey folks, it's your old friend, Mr. Todd A. Davis from the Cinema Shock Podcast here to ask, are you tired of seeing a random episode of Star Trek and thinking, hmm, I wonder where this falls into the overall prime timeline? I know I am. That's why I'm bringing you a new podcast covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order. It's called Computer Resume Podcast. Each week, join me and a rotating panel of my family and friends as we boldly talk Trek like no one has before. If there's a joke to be made, we'll make it. And if there's a poignant discussion to be had, well, we'll try our best. We'll also have interviews, contests, take listener questions, and other things currently deemed classified by Section 31 those shifty motherfuckers. So join us every week starting in January of 2021 for the Computer Resume Podcast, free wherever you get your podcasts. And be the first to hit us up online now at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or email us directly at ComputerResumePodcast at gmail.com. The Computer Resume Podcast, part of the Slice of Fry Gold Network. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you soon. So the stunt coordinator in this movie is a guy named Bobby Bass. Uh, Bobby Bass was a martial artist, judo champion as a teenager. Uh, and it was then when he was uh, practicing judo that he met legendary stuntman Gene LaBelle, who introduced him to the world of movie stunts. Now, I'm not going to go on a huge tangent on Gene LaBelle, but the dude... Judo Gene is, LaBelle. He's a fucking legend. Like, if... look, Just look him up. The dude worked on over a thousand movies and TV shows. He was a martial artist. He was a professional wrestler. Uh, he was a stuntman. He trained... Let me tell you, the, the guys that, if you look at a list of people that he trained in, in grappling and in martial arts, you'll see names like Rowdy Roddy Piper. You'll see names like Chuck Norris. This guy taught Chuck wow. Norris. Wow. Yep. <laughs> so he's a badass. Jeez. You know? uh, and then Bobby Bass was in the military. He was a paratrooper. He was in the special, for special forces. He became an instructor in the special forces. He also is a major badass. And nice. Bass, he was kind of, he was the overall stunt coordinator for the film. He planned and supervised all phases of 
Gibson and Glover's pre-production training, which included physical conditioning, weight workouts, weapons handling and safety, martial arts. And now he didn't teach them martial arts himself, even though he was a martial artist. He brought in a guy named Cedric Adams as a technical supervisor. And Adams and Richard Donner kind of worked on Gibson's character on Riggs to really show, they wanted him to like be truly seen as as a lethal weapon. You know, they wanted to show how dangerous this guy could be. So Adams thought the best way to do that would be to show his mastery of a form of martial arts that had never really been seen on screen before. Another theme. Yeah. <laughs> so after discussing yeah, it with their, the second unit director, who, who was also a martial arts enthusiast and really into kind of like lesser known martial arts, a guy named Willie Simmons, they chose mm -hmm. three different fighting styles. Mm -hmm. So Adams trained Gibson and Gary Busey in an Afro-Brazilian martial art called capo capoeira. Yep, it's kind capoeira. of kind of a dancey like it's it's very hard to describe. But go watch some videos; it's really cool to watch. Yeah, it's actually pretty uh, dope. So is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Well, that's another thing that they learned. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, jailhouse. They they learned jailhouse rock, uh, which is a prison fighting style, kind of a kitchen sink fighting style. They were taught that by a guy named Dennis Newsom, who's also a very interesting character if you look up his his stuff uh he he trained in like uh, he's like a stick fighter uh yeah. so jailhouse rock was really interesting to kind of go down a rabbit hole in and that was a new one for that was a new one for me i was like i have not heard of that before yeah look it up and look up dennis newsome he's pretty interesting cool. and then brazilian jiu-jitsu was taught to them by none other than grandmaster rory and gracie who if you've ever heard of brazilian jiu-jitsu like gracie jiu-jitsu is like that's yeah, he, he essentially it's invented it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he essentially invented Brazilian jiu-jitsu, like that triangle choke that Riggs uses to finally beat Mr. Joshua. Like that was probably the first time that a move like that had ever been used by a movie character. I mean, we see it all the time now in like uh, mixed martial arts and MMA. And the Undertaker, if he wants to submit you, yes, Devil's Triangle, I think. Uh, but Rory and Gracie was he was one of the founding fathers of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and he co-founded the UFC six years after this movie. Like he's as as legit as they come. Nice. Oh yeah, I mean at that time, like nobody knew about jujitsu. So like Hoist Gracie comes into UFC and just like dominates for like years. Yeah. Until until their Brazilian jujitsu ends up becoming like standard knowledge that you have to have if you're going to be an MMA fighter. Yeah, I mean yeah. there's a Gracie jujitsu champ like that. That's a style now, and like you can be the Gracie jujitsu champion. Like it's literally named after his family. You know? Yeah, uh, and that last fight, by the way, I love that last fight between Mel Gibson and Gary Busey. It is, I think it, it's probably Riggs' best moment because he's got like he's got Mr. Joshua dead to rights. He can arrest him. He can kill him. We can mm -hmm. shoot him if he mm -hmm. wants, but instead he challenges him to a fight, which uh, I don't know. It's just, it's like the moment you really see how lethal he actually is. Like, yeah. I, I love the way that they shoot it. I love the chaos. Like they're in, it looks like they're in the rain. It's really like a busted fire hydrant, I think. Yeah. Uh, but you've got this, so he's got this fire. So they're in the mud. You've got this growing crowd of cops around him while Mur Murtaugh is like holding everyone back going, let him fight, let him fight. I'll take any responsibility. Uh, and then you've got the the spotlight and the noise from the helicopter. So it's really chaotic, but it's, it's a really fun fight to watch. It's really bad police work. Yeah. Though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it's good filmmaking. Yeah. 
The film's score was composed by a guy named Michael Kamen, who had become known for scores on films like, uh, he did David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, he did Terry Gilliam's Brazil, he did Highlander, except for the Queen songs, yep. presumably. Uh, <laughs> and then the, the guitar solo in Riggs' theme was performed by Eric Clapton, <laughs> who yeah. uh, Kamen had actually collaborated with on a BBC miniseries called Edge of Darkness, which coincidentally would be remade as a feature film starring Mel Gibson in yep. 2010. <laughs> and Not then, of course, the song Lethal Weapon, the movie's theme, you know, made by how, Honeymoon how's, Suite. How does it go? Suite. How does it when go? When you lose your love. <laughs> <laughs> but, Todd, you mentioned the score earlier, and it's kind of a cheesy, like, porn score, score but <laughs> I kind of like it for what it is. It's kind of, yeah. a, it's, it's noir-ish. Yeah, it's noir-ish. But still very 80s. Yeah, yeah, it is very of its times, but it, it definitely made me think, like, classic noir um like you know the hard-boiled detective who's a little uh a little grizzled in the whole yeah. thing and it just i don't know it just took me to that space yeah the um another uh, since we're while we're talking about stunts what i want to mention is like i always forget like every time i watch this it's probably been a couple of years since i watched it but uh even from when i was a kid so despite laughing at Mel Gibson for saying he made a family film. I do remember seeing this movie when I was very young. <laughs> the uh, the opening scene with the girl diving off the uh, ledge, I, that scene always stands out to me. Yeah. And, uh, so I was digging on that one a little bit, like just to Oops. see. Because for some reason, that image always gets me. And always just that she falls, and like you see her fall. And it doesn't look fake. And, uh, or at least like... It's, a, it's yeah. a real person falling. Yeah, it's a real person falling. <laughs> And so I was watching it. They like actually, you know, went over the ledge, like took a photo of the cars down below. And then they made a like a matte painting of that scene and put like stretched it out over a blow up thing. Really? Yeah. So it's a giant photograph, basically. It's a giant photograph. And she falls into it. If you like slow it down, it's like you could for the briefest of seconds you can see her butt hit and there's like a stretch you know but huh. it cuts like right in time to just go inside the car where like a ram like shoves the hood of the car down that's or great i've never heard of that being that's done before wild. but yeah it was wicked <laughs> i was like that's so cool that is really cool so despite the film's christmas setting the film was released in march of 1987 uh, debuted at number one at the box office where it sat for three weeks. Uh, it was, of course, a major financial success. It brought in over $120 million worldwide. Budget was only $15 million on this, which you know wasn't terribly low by 1987 standards, but wasn't very high either. So it still made a hell of a lot of money. It proved to be really popular with the critics as well. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it four stars. He said, uh, I've seen it all, but this movie thrilled me from beginning to end. Like Roger Ebert's review is a rave like the entire time. It, he's, he talks about how he's always liked Richard Donner's work, but that with this movie, he's topped himself. And like, it's it's a great review to read. One wow. of my favorite critical notes is from uh, Richard uh, Schinkel of uh, Time Magazine, who called it Mad Max meets the Cosby show. <laughs> Just, uh, he liked the movie, but I mean, yeah. what, a, what a bizarre. It's a, yeah, that's you know, a weird comparison. Because it's a black guy in a sweater, I guess. And that's the only other Mel Gibson role he could think of because that's there's nothing Mad Max about this movie at all. Right, Mel right. Gibson. 
and it, uh, and at the beginning, a girl does wake up stripped naked, like presumably having been drugged right beforehand and raped. Well, something. there's that. Well, yeah. yeah, that's post. I mean, that's not necessarily <laughs> post-apocalyptic though. That's been going on for centuries. Well, that's the Cosby Show part I'm talking about. Uh, oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Oh, uh, it took me a took me a second. Thank you for explaining that joke, Gary. <laughs> well, I guess this is a good point since we're talking about critical reviews on this. I'm wondering oh. if there are any reviews that are, are not favorable, Gary. Oh, yeah. You know that even going back to 1987 and Lethal Weapon, there were people that have seen this movie even recently that, well, they didn't like what they saw. And it sounds like somebody needs a nap. This is a, a real short one, but it's from Suya, who says, too much dialogue. My kids went to sleep. <laughs> so, I mean, the kids got a nap, I guess. Yeah. But also, <laughs> but also this, uh, you know, it's a family movie. See? Yeah. Yeah, all the talk about uh, the Vietnam heroin thing just really put the little ones to bed. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, clear. <laughs> you know, what's funny is, for what it's worth, there actually were very few one-star reviews, like legitimate ones, oh, yeah, and that, that seemed like actual like people that just didn't like the movie. Um, so I even had to go to IMDb, and uh, I found this one from Clear Blue Peace, who says, okay, I'll admit that when I saw this movie upon release, I thought it was the most awesome cop movie I had ever seen. It's only upon looking back with the benefit of 21 years of experience that I can say it truly is a dumb movie, one that doesn't hold up to scrutiny, a total departure from real life. I don't know why they bother to make these brainless movies. Are they made just to placate the dumb crowd who wouldn't know real police activity if it jumped up and arrested them? This series got stupider and stupider as it went along, more insulting to viewers' intelligence in each installment. Eventually, they become a political vehicle for gun control messages, showing the public the evils of cop killer bullets. You know, the handgun caliber ammunition that can punch right through the blade of a front end loader? Groan. Yeah, right. I'll never watch one of these movies again. They're for idiots. <laughs> wow. wow. Now, this may be... Last one here is I just went looking around and I found common sense media and I don't know. Oh no. (laughs) I I know all about common sense media. I was about to say, I don't know if they just need to be. We should always just say what common sense media says about all of the movies that we talk about. Yeah. Cause they have a good, like what parents need to know. And then is it any good? So uh, here's what common sense media says. Parents need to know that although Lethal Weapon, which stars Mel Gibson in one of his signature roles, is considered an iconic action comedy, it has a lot of graphic violence. And despite the comic moments, the tone is often quite serious. It treats the deaths of villains and innocent civilians in a very casual manner, as if killing bad guys is simply part of the job of being a cop. The only violence that seems to have any psychic toll is the harm done to young, attractive women. Sex is portrayed only in the context of prostitution and murder. There is female nudity and naked male backside. There is frequent profanity. Male backside? Mel. Oh, oh, clever. <laughs> hey. There's frequent profanity, including his fuck. down under. Characters are shown smoking cigarettes and drinking beer throughout the movie. One of the main characters is shown intoxicated as he holds a gun to his head. 
Early in the film, a woman is shown snorting cocaine and swallowing pills before falling to her death from an upper floor high rise. A character is hugged from a ceiling and tortured with electric shock. Jumper cables are pressed against his body. Another character is tortured by having salt rubbed in his wounds. Is it any good? Lethal Weapon is an unsubtle action movie that trades intrigue for visceral emotion. Angst hangs over much of the film. The world is populated with vengeance-crazed murderers and lonely suicides. Writer Shane Black peppers this movie with gallows humor and veteran action director Richard Donner keeps things lean and mean, refusing to complicate the simple drug-running plot with so much as a twist. The film caters to the audience's bloodlust, allowing us to relish Riggs' ruthless retribution by making him pay for his sins with his sanity. The violence is justified only in the sense that the bad guys are drug-running murderers and so deserve to die. Gibson excels at playing the dispenser of righteous violence, and he's a tragically flawed action hero. Lethal Weapon is suspenseful, but never quite achieves the fever pitch of a diehard film. It is more interested in justifying violence than making the audience think. That's Common Sense Media. Well, Can I just, I just you know. say, though, that legitimately the... Uh, Seen it describes there uh, with sad Mel being sad in the real tears. That actually legit is pretty fucking sad. Like, it's very it's, fucking yeah, sad. Yeah. That's <laughs> a really sad. great job for Mel Gibson right there. Yeah. And, he's uh, really good in this. Yeah. I was watching some stuff for well, They apparently like drug that trailer around all over the place. And it just never felt like they got that scene right. They kept, they kept asking. They said like five o'clock every day. They talked to him like, do you want to try that? Do you want to try that? When daughter said finally, like just one day, like they happened to have it on standby, but like Mel came up and said, Hey, you want to do that scene? I'm ready. And they're like, Okay. Hmm. And so like, they go jump in the trailer and everything was already set up. And he sits down and just does it. And oh, uh wow. and he Jeez. said that everybody in the room was just like, Oh shit. And like just upset. And, like daughter ran up and grabbed the gun out of his hand. Like <laughs> And Mel's like, there weren't real bullets. And he's like, yeah, but you kept hitting yourself in the head with it. He was like, I was just worried about you. So despite the what the Common Sense Media thought about the film, it was massively successful, massively popular. And it resulted in three sequels, uh, all of which were very successful. It resulted in a TV series that premiered in 2016 and ran for three seasons and was apparently pretty fun. I think it just kind of, the, the guy who played Riggs was a, like a dick and ended up getting fired. And then Damon Wayans who played uh, Murtaugh decided to quit the show. So without Riggs and Murtaugh, you don't have much of a TV series. Nope. <laughs> and then of course, in what I consider the best part, the most important part of lethal weapons legacy, uh, it got a spoof film in 1993, which I watched last night called <laughs> loaded weapon one starring Emilio Estevez, Samuel L. Jackson, Tim Curry, William Shatner. Oh, and, John Lovitz and many, many more. Is William um, Shatner the villain? William Shatner's the villain, and Tim Curry is the villain's main henchman. Oh. Nice. William Shatner's got a great mustache in it. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg's in it. Like it's, it's. I mean, it's stupid. It's a stupid early '90s spoof movie, but I laughed a, a lot while watching it last night. Nice. <laughs> loaded Weapon One, right? Loaded Weapon One. National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon One. If we want to get technical, nice. some of those some of those spoof movies were actually pretty fun before uh, Scary Movie came along and fucked us. <laughs> well, the first Scary Movie was pretty good. I, I would blame more like the uh, Not Another Team Movie guys. Those guys. I just blame uh, Scary movie, movie for starting that trend. So yeah, that yeah, no, you're, you're right. Not you're Another right. Team Movie. Yeah. So, well, it's it's real legacy lies 
not in necessarily its sequels or its spoofs, but really in the films that kind of followed in its wake, I think, because much like we talked about how the Dark Knight kind of changed comic book movies forever, Lethal Weapon kind of changed action movies forever. And much oh, yeah. like we talked about how George Romero's Night of the Living Dead created a whole new horror subgenre, Lethal Weapon essentially created a whole new action movie subgenre because it gave us the buddy cop movie, or at least it defined what the buddy cop movie was because there had been some buddy cop movies before. Like we, we mentioned 48 hours earlier that could probably be put in that category. Uh, but although one of them wasn't a cop, I believe one of them was like a con, right? I think any uh, Axel, was like Axel, a con a, Axel's like a con, but, and you could even hell if you wanted to, you could go look back at Akira Kurosawa's stray dog. Wait, his or character's in the name Axel night. in that movie. Huh? What? In 48 Hours, his name's Axel? Oh, wait, I'm thinking, that's his name in Beverly Hills. Cop. I was about to say, yeah, I was gonna say that, is, <laughs> sorry, that is weak. Why is he always named Axel? Uh, sorry, I was thinking, uh, wrong, right actor, wrong character name. Anyway, <laughs> Lethal Weapon was the one of those movies that really kind of codified, like defined what the, like the tropes of the buddy cop movie you know sort of how like black um, christmas like made a slasher movie sort of but then like halloween halloween came along and defined it. it it created like, the genre based on you know yeah exactly exactly uh i mean this was the movie like like halloween this is the movie that other movies in that subgenre were trying to ape they were this is the one that they movies that when friday the 13th came out it wasn't trying to be black christmas it was trying to be halloween uh, you know when uh rush hour comes out a decade later, it's trying to be the new lethal weapon. It's not necessarily trying to be the new 48 hours. If that right. makes any sense, you know, right. uh, the movie also established the voice of Shane black, uh, whose films, as we'll see in, in the coming weeks, they often feature, pick, uh, they also often feature these, like this, these tough guys, action, wise cracking dialogue, and usually a pretty complicated plot. That's if you really think about it, it's almost silly and how complicated it is. That happens in a lot of his <laughs> movies, you know, uh, and then at it, the heart, though, of all of his movies, I think, are the characters. I think that's why they work so well. And in, in the case of this one, two iconic characters played by two iconic actors. And I mean, like Martin Riggs, I think, is one of the best characters in, in movie history. I mean, mm. I, that sounds hyperbolic, mm. but he is an iconic character. And we won't get too much into, you know, Gibson's personal life. It doesn't change the fact that he gives an incredible performance here. Well, yeah. let's give some props to Murtaugh here. Everybody knows oh, I'm yeah. too old for this shit. No, Murtaugh's great as well. I, I, I mean, that's the thing. They work so well together. And, you know, uh, Riggs would turn into more of like a comedian, uh, more of a comic relief character as these movies went on. Right. Because uh, they did get funnier as they went on. But the character here is pretty fucking dark. Like, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, one of his first scenes is that scene that Gary described where he's sitting in his trailer crying with a gun in his mouth. I mean, that's pretty dark shit. Yeah. I think they turn his, uh, his, manic is manic depressive into more of a comedic tone and i i'm i have some thoughts and feelings about that but like yeah would say part movies. of the journey here though is that riggs is a character that at the beginning of this movie is like he he's he's due to 86 in like the next few weeks like he's right. not gonna make it it's him finding murtaugh and getting paired up with him that actually saves his life too, in a way, not right. to even give it more, but I'm just saying that I feel like that's part of the story here too, is that he's found like 
a friendship and a reason to go on and yeah like a, well i mean you see that when he gives him the bullet for christmas sure yeah. like i don't i don't need this anymore well um, and, and Murtaugh is kind of the opposite the, the complete opposite of riggs's character because he is a family man uh unlike riggs he has a like a lot to live for like he is the polar opposite of his character and i think that's why it works so well and here's the thing a lot of, a lot of movies that would feature a character like murtaugh who's like kind of a straight-laced cop family man you know nothing too exciting they would portray him as kind of like a bore like a you know kind of a boring character kind of a wet sandwich of a character <laughs> but murtaugh's still a badass like he's a uh, vietnam oh, yeah. vet um he's he's just like riggs he is also a vietnam vet he wasn't as traumatized by his experience not in the same way as Riggs was but he's a badass you know and he has his moments too of like like you said wet sandwich he's not he's not doing that like he's like when he's with his kids and stuff he's like super funny and like yeah playing around and yeah like he's he's very very likable yeah he's uh, the, it's it, weird well, that the first time the first scene you see is his kids bursting into his bathroom while he is fully nude yeah yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Families are different, Justin. Just wait. Uh, my, if if I, I if your family is like that, that is, there are some unhealthy. There's you always set, you need to set some boundaries. Some boundaries, yeah. <laughs> there's there's always some dick swinging in family environments. I don't. No, that's listen. Terrible. You got to show that you're the man of the house, and one of the ways you do that is just let it fly. <laughs> just oh my god, let it fly. I think if the I were important part bath here, and my family burst in to tell me happy birthday, <laughs> I would be. Ho- mortified i think the thing we're trying to say about them is these are not just one-dimensional characters which is the thing as we've gone through this that sold literally everybody involved in this movie uh that's that's the part that got them is that shane black wrote a script that has real people like it seems like real people involved in the story so it's not just things blow up and nobody gives a shit who's who's there well, the, the movie also feels, and I, I feel like Todd kind of touched on this earlier, but the movie feels in a way like a real precursor to Die Hard. Uh, I mean, of course, you've got the Christmas setting, which we haven't commented on this yet, but Lethal Weapon's Christmas setting actually famously gave Joel Silver the idea to set Die Hard at Christmas. Die Hard was not originally set at Christmas. He liked how well it worked in this movie, so he did it with Die Hard. Not nice. only that... But the title Die Hard was Shane Black's title. Uh, Shane Black was working on another script. Joel Silver, they were they were working on Die Hard under its original title, the title of the, the novel it's based on. And Joel Silver liked the title Die Hard, so he asked Shane Black if he could have it, and Shane Black gave it to him. And then the, the script that Shane Black was working on that was originally called Die Hard ended up being called The Last Boy Scout. Mm. okay cool but the way that this movie feels like a precursor to to die hard is that it features like real dudes right Mm -hmm. like just like Mm -hmm. we talk about john mcclain a lot being like the the kind of moment when action movies turned away from that like stallone schwarzenegger superman type and focused on kind of real uh kind of broken men like Mm -hmm. but but martin riggs came before Martin Riggs was a real dude and a broken dude. Like he came before John McClane. So John McClane was a big part of that legacy, but Lethal Weapon did it first. That's a, that's a really good point. I mean, yeah. I mean, really flawed guys just in general, both of the big action stars here are flawed, you know, just everyday guys. Yeah. Like they're human. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas like you watch commando and 
I love Commando, but Schwarzenegger is not a human being in that movie. Right. <laughs> you know, he is nothing he does is anything that a real human being could do. I mean, I think in the opening scenes of Commando, you literally see him like pushing trees around or something like logs around and yeah. working out. Yeah, it's <laughs> insane. But okay, so one one other thing that we have to talk about, of course, because this is the entire basis of this series that we're doing, is the Christmas setting and Shane Black's obsession with Christmas. So when he was asked about this Christmas obsession back in 2013, this is what he said. He said, Christmas is fun. It's unifying and all of your characters are involved in this event that stays within the larger story. It roots it, I think. It grounds everything. At Christmas, lonely people are lonelier, seeing friends and family go by. People take reckoning. They take stock of where their lives are at on Christmas. Mm. So that makes a lot of sense because he's using Christmas to show how feelings are kind of amplified during the holidays, you know? Oh, yeah. And because his scripts are so character-based, it's, it's actually a very clever move. Like, I mean, like you said, lonely people are, are, are lonelier at Christmas. Like, there, there's a reason that the suicide rates go up at Christmas time. And of course, that's a major component of the Riggs character. Yes, he's he always is missing his wife because she died. I think they say she died like six a few months before. Yeah, a few months, maybe six months. So this is his first Christmas without his wife. Yeah. So he's been missing her for six months, but then the holidays hit and you see the Christmas lights and decorations everywhere. And that just amplifies that loneliness, you know? Mm. So it's, a, it's interesting. Like I was reading this entertainment weekly interview with him too, where they asked him about it. And he was like, it's not in everything. And they're like, it kind of is. It kind of is in most things. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he says, uh, he finally admits, he said, this is a quote from the interview. He says, it tends to be a touchstone for me. Christmas represents a little stutter in the March of days, a hush in which we have a chance to assess and retrospect our lives. I tend to think also that it's just informs as a backdrop. And first time I noticed it was in Three Days of the Condor, the Sidney Pollock film, where Christmas in the background adds this really odd, chilling counterpoint to the espionage plot. I also think that Christmas is just a thing of beauty, especially as it applies to places like Los Angeles, where it's just not so obvious and you have to dig for it like little nuggets. One night on Christmas Eve, I walked past a Mexican lunch wagon serving tacos and I saw this little string and on it was a little broken plastic figurine with a light bulb inside it of the Virgin Mary. And I thought, that's just a little hidden piece of magic. You know, all around the city are little slices, little icons of Christmas that are just as effective and beautiful in and of themselves as any 40 foot Christmas tree on the lawn of the white house. So that in a lot of words is the answer. Yeah. And he's wow. right though. I think like aesthetically it changes the feel of the movie. Like he's saying with, with three days of the condor, cause it creates a, a sense of irony by kind of juxtaposing kind of the jolliness of the season, the brightness of the lights mm-hmm. with kind of the darker, elements of the story you know like like in that opening scene that gary described earlier where the girl jumps off or we find out is is thrown off of the building set to jingle bell rock right yeah Uh, yeah. like that's a great use of that song and it's a great juxtaposition between a song that we normally associate with being you know fun and festive with a very dark scene you know right and then of course you've also got you know Black scripts are rooted in film noir in those in those 70s cop movies, like Walter Hill movies. But having Christmas lights in the background give it kind of a different feel, you know, yeah. aesthetically speaking. Yeah, absolutely. 
Another interesting and, fact about it is that, you know, one of the best scenes or most Christmassy scenes is the uh, Christmas tree uh, truck scene where you first meet Riggs. Uh, yeah, yeah. Coke. Uh, one of those guys. And I have to think it's the one with that ends up putting the gun to Riggs's head because it just looks right. Uh, is uh, the father of Anthony Kiedis of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so just wow. an extra little fun fact for you. Interesting. Nice. Uh, one thing that I love about the Christmas setting, though, and I think this is something we'll probably see over the course of these episodes we're doing in this series, is how it also highlights the idea of kind of creating your own family to spend time with during the holidays. Yeah. Um, because his movies are always about these kind of mismatched people, these kind of screwed up people, finding other screwed up people to spend their time with. Cause yeah, Murtaugh is not really that screwed up, but he's got some anxiety about his age and things like that. And we'll see in, in further films that we're going to talk about in this series that this really becomes a thing where two people who are kind of screw ups, find each other and find a, someone that they can relate to, you know, it's this kind of found family concept and it kind of makes his films oddly comforting, I think, because most Christmas movies are about, spending time with family, blood, like blood family, you know, with spending your time with your immediate family, uh, or they're sometimes about romance, you know, but his movies kind of take a different route. And I think it makes them appeal to people who don't have those things and can't relate to those things, you know, because yeah. it, it is not everyone can watch uh, like home alone and, and relate to when Kevin and his family reunite at the end, you know, yeah. they've, they've never had that before. Yeah. Uh, but they've been alone on Christmas. So like Murtaugh or, or Riggs rather is somebody that they can more relate to. But then you, you have these characters finding each other. Like you've got in, in a lot of these movies, we're going to talk about a lot of characters find redemption uh, and they find kind of a rebirth, which are both major themes during the Christmas season, especially in, in like, if you think of Christmas in the context of like the Christian faith, uh, rebirth and redemption are, are major factors. So I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, in, in the case of this, we'll talk about this in future episodes, but in the case of this one specifically, Riggs finds a reason to live. You know, that's a, that's a major character arc, you know, he, and he finds a family. He yeah. finds a, a, a family that is accepting him when he doesn't really have a family of his own. He finds Murtaugh's family because at the end of the movie, he's going to have shitty Christmas Turkey with him, you know? <laughs> well, uh, and, and that's why he, you know, Todd mentioned this earlier, but that's symbolized by him handing, giving Murtaugh that, that bullet at mm -hmm. the end of the movie. Cause he doesn't need it anymore. Yeah. And it's to, for the listeners uh, to kind of pull the curtain back on uh, the dynamic between the three of us, we've been getting together. Um, well, uh, you know, of course, until this year, uh, <laughs> we've been getting together every year for Halloween uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And yeah. it, to be honest, even, you know, I have family that live here in town. Of course, me and my wife uh, are, you know, together and everything, but it's these for, for the Davis, for the Davis household, we, um, we really enjoy getting together with the bishops and the horns and uh, the rest of our little motley crew. And it's, it's yeah. that family that we've chosen. I think for most of us in our, yeah. in our friend group, like those are everyone's favorite, like the, yeah. that's their favorite day of the holiday season. You know, yeah, it really is, uh, it really you know, is. We, we look forward to those more than actually having to get together with our real with families. Our own family. <laughs> <laughs> this Christmas yeah. I'll be spending mine with a gun in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll probably have a bunch of little kids walk in on me in the tub. So uh, um, <laughs> it's a, it's it's especially not okay if it's staged. Doc. I'll be doing a lot of cocaine. So <laughs> you don't have children. So. <laughs> so. <laughs> Oh god! So we have really personified this movie between the yes, three of us. We're working absolutely. on it. Yeah, absolutely. we're like. Here's something like, to make you feel especially bad. By the way, that stood out to me this time is uh, Danny Glover was forty. Like he's playing a guy who just turned fifty. He was forty as he. I was wondering this. that. And I, I meant to look it up, but I mean, he, he comes across. I think that he comes across okay as he comes across as older than forty. Right. Uh, I yeah. think that's. I think that's partially his. He's got an older look. He's always had an older look. Uh, Danny Glover's one of those guys who's always looked a little y- older than he actually is, but they also, they dress him like in sweater vest and shit. Like they dress him like an old man. Well, know? I saw, I saw an interview with Chris Rock where he was also, that means that I'll be, that, that's where I was going to depress you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we are too old for this shit. We're, we're, <laughs> we're that age, right? Now, which is so fucked up to think about. Um, but no, what, I saw an interview with Chris Rock where he was like, I, I think he shows up in like three and four or something, I think is he shows up in those Lethal Weapon movies, but they're interviewing him on the set of one of those. And he's like, Danny Glover was younger than I am now when he started shooting these. He's like, that's how, that shows you how much easier it is to be black in Hollywood than it was when he was around. <laughs> he, he was like, because I look really good. And that <laughs> motherfucker looked old as hell. <laughs> He looked old as hell. <laughs> Sorry. That's, good. that's all good. I'll get away with. Hey. <laughs> I liked it. I thought that was... Oh, man. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Thanks. Another Thanks. important part to mention here, just in the rounding up of this whole thing, is one of the overarching stories we're covering is Shane Black, of course, in the Black Christmas story. We've delved a lot into him. I think it's important to mention, too, that one of the big things here, and this came from Mark Kenton. He talked a little bit about it, and one of the things I was looking into... Um, just that he said, you have no idea how much this inspired so many young screenwriters. Shane Black went in a span of 24 to 48 hours, went from being a completely broke UCLA grad, just like tried to scrape by to becoming a super successful Hollywood story that like he's the hottest thing in the business right this second. Yeah, yeah. And he's loaded. And also talks about this, and I Googled it. He said also went on to, uh, he went from being the shy, reclusive person to all of a sudden right around this time became, uh, besides an uber successful Hollywood writer, uh, he breaks out of his shell and becomes known for throwing the most legendary Halloween parties every year in (laughs) Hollywood. Nice. And you could Google it. There's pictures. And it's like everybody who's anybody's there. It's hundreds of people in this mansion. And it is like, Everything you think about the crazy shit that happens in Hollywood is like these parties that Shane Black threw, where it's probably like mountains of cocaine and rivers of booze and people just <laughs> naked and just doing fucked up Hollywood shit. I love wow. it. That sounds fun. That does sound like fun, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Will you guys have anything else to add here? No, I, lo- I, I love this. This is this is great. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to expand my uh, diehard watching at Christmas time to a double feature to to a double feature and do lethal weapon and diehard. I I was thinking about that this time. All of these movies are great. It's almost kind of sad that lethal weapon doesn't get its props. Like, like there's a big run on Die Hard, you know, every year you get that discussion. It's a Die Hard Christmas movie. Yeah. Every single year now it's like a thing, but it's like, man, lethal weapon deserves some uh, love in there too. 
Yeah, I agree. Oh, yeah. So next week, we're moving on to the next Shane Black script to be produced, which was a film from 1991. Another, you know, Shane Black staple, another mismatched duo star. This time it's uh, Bruce Willis and Damon Wayans in Tony Scott's 1991 action film, The Last Boy Scout. Uh, you can find it online. It's pretty easy to find to rent or stream. Uh, you guys head to cinemashock.net if you want links on where you can stream it at any time. And, uh, well, that's a, that's about all we got. I guess this is a wrap-up of Lethal Weapon, week one of Black Christmas. I'm excited to talk about the rest of these movies. Yeah. Some of these, I, I, the last Boy Scout in particular, I have not seen in a very long time. You know, uh, the others the I, I watch, I've watched more recently. So I have the VHS of The Last Boy Scout, and it's been years and years since I've seen it. But I watched it a ton when I was a kid. Also, as a very young Danielle Harris, who, this is not creepy when I say this, Early on, became a crush for me, and I was the same age as her, so it was okay. <laughs> but I, I liked don't... it because of her, I remember. And also, I just remember really thinking it was a cool movie. Yeah. Because uh, this is the I'm one the... with uh, the football stuff, right? The football stuff, yep. Yeah, that's the one. I don't, oh. think, I've ever, I don't think I've ever seen it. Well, get this excited to watch the... it. It's I, I am. Fun. I'm very excited to watch so. it. It's definitely the one of the series that I've seen the le- the least. So mm. uh, I'm, I'm excited to check it out because it's been years. Well, uh, hey, guys, what did one shepherd say to the up- other shepherd? Um, Let's get know. the fuck did- out of here. Let's ah. get the fuck out of here. That's good. That's quality. Yeah, that's good. That's All good right. stuff. Well, uh, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Gary, where can you be found on the internet? Oh, hey, also... I can be found on the internet at this is Gary Horde. I am at Justin underscore Bishop, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. And uh, instead of uh, plugging myself, uh, there's a local, uh, there's a local film. We uh, love when you plug yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it's called pegging Todd. (laughs) Yeah. There it is. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, instead of promoting <laughs> my uh, my social uh, my social media or anything, uh, there's a uh, which local... is at this is Mr. Todd a, or Mr. Todd A. Davis at Mr. Todd A. Davis. It's really quick. Yeah, we did change. it for you, but continue, Todd. There's a there's a local uh, feature film being made. It's called E is Four, and uh, they are at E is Four underscore film. Really, uh, if if you're if you're fans of us, if you're fan of uh, genre things, if you're fan of poignant movies that matter, uh, go check out E is for film. That's E is for underscore film. They are um, they are actually crowdfunding some stuff right now. Um, their description on Instagram is a black queer sci fi feature film about self love as revolution, community, and quantum physics, and I've been following a little bit of their stuff. Like I said, they are crowdfunding and they are actually in the last 10 days, I think of their, uh, of their crowdfunding campaign. So uh, please go check them out. Uh, They're some really great folks and they're making a really kick-ass project. Um, Go check them out. E is for film. Uh, E is for underscore film rather and uh, show them some love. Yeah. Thank you, Todd. We always love supporting local independent filmmakers. You can find Cinema Shock at cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook or uh, once again at cinemashock.net where you can find all of our episodes, all of our series linked together. We've also got some other fun stuff in the works for that website. Until next week.
May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Jan Nihar Niklarna. Well, is that um, Swedish? That, that Swedish is chef? Swedish. Yeah, Johnny has the keys in Swedish. <laughs> Where we are in the top 20. Oh, oh good one. That's clever. Oh, yeah. Little, That's little pat on our back. There we go. Mark, thank you from Todd. Thank you to all of our Swedish fans. Woo, apparently. apparently. In Australia, we love you too. I probably butchered the pronunciation of that, but that's... You, uh, you surely did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. I tried, guys. All right, let's get the fuck out of here. Describing yep. all the violence, did uh, did either of you guys get a boner? No, Todd.